0: You know, one of the great unsung but enduring challenges of parenting uh, is having to endure youth cinema. You know how it gets with your parenting. You've had just enough of the Disney specials, and so you're like, let's go make a night of it and go to the movie theaters and watch something fun on the big screen. I remember back in the late 90s talking to a friend who had just endured uh, the movie Air Bud uh, with his children. And so out of curiosity, I went and looked it up online and found this description of the plot... Of Air Bud. The world's cutest golden retriever shows off his Michael Jordan-esque hoop skills and wrote to leading a middle school basketball team to victory. (laughs) I mean the absurdity of the plot would make it almost unwatchable, would it not? But it got me thinking a little bit about how much the plot of a story affects your apprehension of the story. A plot by definition is just a sequence of events but it really is really the why of the story that you're looking at. In other words, the plot is that thing that draws you into the character's lives, and most importantly, helps the reader understand the choices that all the characters make. So my question this morning as we continue this look at the Bible in its narrative form, how the Bible is itself a story from Genesis 1 through 3, what is the plot of the Bible? Um, Why do the characters in the Bible make the choices they do? Why do the biblical authors arrange the material in the way in which they do? Well, to answer that question, I want to consider something that came from St. Augustine, who was one of the first to explain that the Trinity really is the only view of God that has relationship at the center of the ultimate ground of being. You know, Eastern religions... Uh, uh, they picture God as an impersonal force. The idea of personality is just an illusion. Western religions, however, often posit either a multiplicity of gods, sort of emerge from the primordial slime, or they purely say that God is only one who creates because he's lonely or something like that. But only in the Christian trinity, uh, trinity do you find relationship being at the very heart of reality, In other words, only in the Christian God do you have a community existing from all eternity in this mutual delight and communication between the members of the Godhead. Every other religion has to import the idea after the fact. But with Christianity, relationship is primary. And yet you get this statement in chapter 2, verse 18, where it says, it is not good that man should be alone. Well, how can that happen? (laughs) Was this a design flaw? Did God leave something out that he forgot? Why is it that the first human is in paradise, but he's lonely and lacking in some way? And I think the answer lies in the fact that we are as human beings made in the image of a God who is not just a me, but he is also an us. And therefore, since he is, as our creeds say, three persons in one essence, we will not be happy until we're in a relationship with him. God looks out over creation and sees that Adam needed community with him. And for that reason, it is formatted on your spiritual DNA to need community with other image bearers. That's why it's there. Humanity goes this deep to us. And so for years, I've been trying to use this explanation to define a very important Bible word that I want to dig deep into this morning. And that's the word, covenant. We say, when we say that man is created for relationship, we mean that he was created covenantally. And here's my premise. If you don't have at least some kind of rudimentary understanding of that idea of this word covenant, you're going to miss almost the entire storyline of the Bible. Thomas Schreiner is a New Testament theologian at Southern Seminary up in Louisville, Kentucky. And he says this, he says, the covenants are crucial because they're the backbone of the storyline of the Bible. Bible. The Bible isn't a random collection of laws and moral principles and stories. It's a story that goes somewhere. It's a story of redemption and of God's kingdom. But as it unfolds and advances, it does so through the covenants that God makes with his people. Listen to this. He says, if we don't understand the covenants, we will not and cannot understand the Bible because we won't understand how the story fits together. And so right here in Genesis chapter 2, you get so much more than just primeval history. You get God, first of all, laying out this sort of structure of how he's going to reveal himself. You get him applying that structure to his creatures, mankind. And then finally, he gives them an illustration in marriage to help that thing come home. Or, for our purposes, we're going to see the covenant defined, the covenant applied, and then the covenant illustrated. Just those three things. Let's dive into this. Number one, the covenant gets defined for us in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, which I would say are the first narrative explanation of the covenant in the Bible. Yes, the word covenant doesn't actually appear there, but all the elements of a covenant are there, of which there are three, I would submit to you. The first part of a covenant is you have to have a fundamental definition of the relationship. And verse 15 says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. There you go. That's the definition of the relationship, and it's one clearly of authority. God's sovereign oversight over man is seen in that he can place him wherever he wishes. There's the authority. But the second aspect of the covenant is that we get defined for us appropriate behaviors that are associated with that definition. And so verse 17, we see God talking about eating and not eating. In other words, the nature of this relationship is such that you got to live in a certain way if you're going to honor that relationship. Thirdly, we find out that there's actually stipulations, or what the rest of the Old Testament will call blessings and cursings. Might have read that in the Old Testament. And these are the things that come along with the definition. And the end is laid out very clearly in verse 17 when it says, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's the stipulations. The blessing is to live. The curse is death. So there you have it. (laughs) The story of Scripture is going to fall out, for lack of a better phrase, into this pattern that's created by this reality. The covenant has structured the action for the rest of the story of the Bible. And it's absolutely essential to get this piece of understanding if you're going to understand any of the action that comes after this, really for the rest of the Bible. But remember, when we say the Bible is a story, we're not suggesting that it's somehow make-believe. Actually, the Bible is your story if you live in his world. And so for our purpose this morning, I want you to notice that because we're created to relate to the ultimate source of reality in God, that relation takes place in the pattern of a covenant, which means that every other human relationship we have kind of begs for a definition too. Does that make sense? In other words, if you're created in the image of a God who relates to people in this way, we relate to each other as his image bears in the same way. Let me throw out some examples to you. You know this intuitively. When you're born, there's this new relationship called parent-child, right? Uh, you, you got spankings when you were told, you know, you're not going to talk to your mother that way. You found out, okay, there's someone out there who expects something with me. Eventually that kind of clicked in your heart. I live at their, in their framework, right? Sovereignly administered, not only. Later on, we go to school and we suddenly find there's a new relationship of teacher and student. A teacher was different. They they really weren't like my parents, but they also certainly weren't like friends either. And I learned those rules that I went along. Some of us says we broke those rules. Most of us though, it really didn't occur to us until we got married. And we realized there was this brand new sort of bond called husband and wife that we had to relate to. And of course, this is one that was nowhere near as as instinctive as you kind of hoped it would be before you you got married. This one kind of stumbled into because we realized that we had been raised in such an individualistic default mode that it wasn't natural to talk about mutual submission. But you, you notice, when someone actually isn't able to control their selfish urges in marriage, we call that abusive, do we not? And rightfully so, because it hurts when we are not living in accordance with what the definition of the relationship actually is. Why? Because reality is structured around covenants. Now, we don't have time to deal with it here, but, I, but as by way of illustration, because we've got so many parents here who will eventually have children who will be fumbling around with relationships very soon, if you haven't already been through this uh, saga, I, I made a career of about 25 years of my life trying to talk to young people and explain that the whole idea of dating is a fairly complicated one. Uh, Because if we're formatted for relationships and they have covenants at their heart, what then is the definition between our young people when they pair up with each other? Uh, These things can be, as you well know, very powerful emotional roller coasters for the people that experience them. A A lot of joy, a lot of elation, but a lot of anger and hurt and betrayal can come along with those things as well. Now, look, I don't have time to dive into it, but I really want to suggest to you that It's a helpful way to talk to our young people about these relationships by framing them in the terms of the covenant. In other words, do we recognize that there are bonds being created there? Some of those bonds can be healthy, other ones are not. And I've been saying for years that really the Bible only knows three conceivable kinds of bonds that can exist between a single man and a single woman. You can be friends, which means you have no intentions for the future of that relationship. You can be engaged to be married as soon as possible, which means you have lots of plans for the future of that relationship. Or you can just not know and not be sure. But my point has always been to say, we have to start exploring with young people that the bond that you've created is a thing. What do you mean when you say you're dating? Because if you think that word is clear, it ain't. I promise. I I can vouch for that one. And then begin to say, okay, once we've established like what this thing is, what are the behaviors that are appropriate given one of those particular definitions? So if you haven't talked about these things with who you're dating, you honestly have not defined the relationship. And that, I think, is where the dysfunction starts to roll out. It's not a seminar topic for a later date. We'll leave that there. I'm just going through the examples to try to convince you that because we're created in the image of God, we are formatted to wonder what the status is between us and those around us, between the others around us. We need a framework to know what is and is not appropriate. Why? Because God made us that way. But here's the good news. In Genesis chapter 2, we find that God has not made his people to wonder and never, not really, not really ever know because he's been explicit about what this relationship is and what the behaviors are that are appropriate for that. Some theologians call this the covenant of works. Uh, others call it, and I like this, the, the title better, the covenant of God's favor. Because God is coming and demanding that Adam choose his favor in the face of his own. And so God wants Adam to delight in him and him alone as the source of all life. And he wants for us to live a life that's consistent with his favor. Uh, Jesus actually picks up on this same kind of language when in the New Testament he'll say things like, why do you call me Lord, but then don't do the things that I say? That's covenant language. You've got a definition of the relationship, Lord, but over here is this behavior called disobedience that doesn't match up. See what he's saying? Now look, there's a thousand applications we could make on this sort of covenantal structure of life, if you will. But this morning I just want to focus on one little I think very powerful realization that happens to you when you start to see the covenantal framework of the Bible, and it's simply this. Outside of a community, you really don't know who you are. Like, if this is the structure of our very humanity, the way God patterns the world, you really don't know because you are so constitutionally fashioned to be in relationship. You don't know about yourself unless you are in a community of people. The more isolated you are as a person, the further and further you get away from an accurate self-assessment, self-picture. I'll give you an example. Um, have you ever, when was the last time you heard your voice play back to you in some recorded medium? Now, from the looks on your faces right now, that was a painful experience for you. Does anyone like the sound of their voice recorded and played back to them? No, you hate that sound. And you always say it out loud, ah. I don't sound anything like that. Why why does that like that? Turn that off. But there's always somebody right next to you who says what? That's exactly what you sound like, right? (laughs) My point is, we don't even know what we sound like. (laughs) How much more do we know what our gifts are? What our weaknesses are? what what, what What our aspirations flesh out is? How we come across to other people unless we're in community. We screen things out. We read books. We go, to, we go to Sunday school classes. Even We even read the Bible. But if we don't do that in community with a group of friends that will, that will confront us sometimes and even affirm us, we're going to screen out the stuff that we need to hear. Look, I realize it for many of you. As soon as, 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 soon as the church starts encouraging you to join a small group, it, it feels like just one more thing they want you to sign up for. But there's a rationale behind our church's constant emphasis between wanting you to get into small groups. Because we really don't think that you can grow unless you're in one of these groups. It doesn't matter whether it's one of the women's small groups or the the men's Friday morning Bible study. Or maybe it's the the fellowship groups that are going to relaunch with much fanfare here in a couple of weeks. The fact is, the more isolated you are, the less likely you are to be growing as a Christian. Why? Because it's laid out as a covenant. So we either have to spend some time creating that group or getting in a group. Otherwise, we won't see the application. So, so that's the covenant defined for us. Secondly, though, in Genesis 2, we see the covenant applied. Now we get to see how this sort of comes home. Because God wants Adam to come into a conscious acceptance of this covenant. He wants to apply it to his own heart. And so he gives Adam what we might call a test command by putting these two trees in the middle of the garden. But by doing so, what, God is, what Adam did was, was basically uh, present a challenge to determine what was good as his own. He needed to experience the covenant as a real two-way thing, which could only happen if he faced the possibility of a conflict. And so God puts the test command of these trees. And so he puts these parameters around these trees. In verses 8 and 9, we didn't have time to read this back up in the chapter, but look there now we can find that the first tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a lot of people get thrown off there because the, word, the phrase to know in Hebrew doesn't mean like to be aware of. In this context, it's better translated to distinguish. In other words, the definition of good, therefore, is what God commands. And evil is what he forbids. The point was how man was to decide what was right and wrong. Was it going to be by his own judgment? Or was it going to be in trust that what God said was true? That's the question. Now, this is the reason why when they blow it later on uh, in chapter 3, God looks at him and says, Now the man has become like one of us, knowing, that is distinguishing for himself, between good and evil. You see what the issue was? It was one of allegiance. Who have you pledged your allegiance to? But the second tree was the tree of life. This one's also in the garden. But when Adam came and ate this tree, it was his way of, giving, of being given by God a way to affirm the covenant. You know, to say that he agreed to listen to God, to say that he accepted his interpretation of things, to accept God's affection for him. So when Adam ate from the tree of life, it was like he confirmed his faith. He locked himself in on this identity that only God could say it was to be. Now, look, both of these trees were given to Adam as a way of kind of connecting him to his embrace of the covenant. It it became a real-life thing in this way. You know, it it sort of brought Adam's allegiance in contact with God's authority. That's what the trees were all about. But, you know, the hard part can, can be relating to the two trees in our day. Like, okay, what was that all about? It's a weird story. How do I live with those things? But I actually think there's a couple applications that come to us when we begin to think about our own celebration of the sacraments. You know, next week we'll be taking the Lord's Supper, and I would sort of make a, a submission to you that like the two trees are actually still in front of us when we consider the Lord's Supper. Because for a Christian, when we choose to follow our own judgment rather than what the Word of God clearly says, we are marching right up to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and taking a big old bite. But when we gather together with Christians, Sunday in and Sunday out, and partake of the Lord's body and his blood, as he taught us to do, we're eating from the tree of life. We affirm the covenant. At that moment, we delight in, we we bask in his affection for us. And he's promised to be with us as we do. And secondly, what this means then, this is a great point I heard a preacher make years ago about, about the Lord's Supper, is it shows how much the Lord's Supper feeds into the idea of the covenant. Because in relationships, he said, you don't just sort of define the relationship once and then leave it to be. <laughs> if you ever find yourself saying, well, you know, I mean, I, I told her I loved her a decade ago. Um, she's fine. That's the wrong way of looking at it. You've got to understand that we have to hear again and again this affirmation that comes from the covenant. Like, have things changed? Uh, have my intentions changed? Are, are you and I moving in the same direction still? And many of the stresses that we have in relationships come because you thought that when I said I do, that was kind of where it ended. But this preacher was saying you need to think of your relationships as if they're like a, like a colander, a strainer, you know, full of holes. The people that you're around, whether it be your spouse or your children or those people that work underneath you, they are bottomless pits of needs for affirmation and grace. This fall, we're going to have a speaker come and do a, uh, a marriage conference for us uh, in the last weekend of October. It's going to be wonderful, by the way. But I've heard him speak on a number of occasions, and when he talks about child rearing, he makes this powerful statement where he says, your chi- children are born with an incessant need to be de-shamed all the time. They're born with that sense all the time because it, t- t- they need to be reminded that we're still for them, that our love for them is not conditional. And so every time you come and take the Lord's Supper, he's telling you again, I still love you. My blood is still effective for your sin. I've not forgotten you. Why? Because God's a good parent. (laughs) He's someone who understands what it means to apply a covenant to his people's hearts. Which kind of brings me to the last point. We see the covenant defined and the covenant applied. The last thing we see is the covenant that is illustrated. And man, what a powerful illustration it is! Look at verse eighteen there 's one more thing that needs to come home to adam 's heart because God realizes that because Adam is a creature, he really couldn 't know the heart that God had for him in purely spiritual categories. How about that so God says he 's been, he's been announcing all of these these uh, benedictions. This is good. He created this, and that was good. Suddenly though, he pronounces what we call a malediction there 's something that is not good. And that is that man should be alone. And so in order to remedy the situation, he starts to pass the animals in front of Adam to see what he would name them. by the way, in that culture, when you name something, you were taking a measure of authority over it, right? So God says, Adam, here, here's the lion. What do you think? And Adam's like, wow, lion. Awesome. He's loud, very strong, powerful, pretty good God, but not quite what I was looking for. All right, that's fine. Well, here's a giraffe. What do you think of this? He's like, oh, giraffe, awfully helpful. See over trees and whatever else. Nice, impressive animal, but still not just right. And so after this goes on, God's like, okay, I know what I'm going to do. And he creates the woman, right? And he presents her to the woman. And you get sort of what I heard one preacher call the very first love poem ever written in the Bible. (laughs) Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone." Uh, Loose translation, (laughs) love her, I am her. I now see what you're talking about, Lord. I know who I am now, finally, because I can see myself in her. Look, here's the point. Marriage is one of the most important object lessons of the covenant. You know, verse 25 says that Adam and Eve were, and this is the key phrase, naked and unashamed. Man, that's a powerful statement. And actually, once you grasp what that phrase means, it's going to explain so much of what kind of motivated you to marriage in the first place. Because the nakedness means that they were utterly transparent in front of each other. You know, Adam and Eve, if you think about it, prior to their fall into sin, they were never, they were never spinning themselves to each other. You know what I mean by spinning yourself? Like putting on some kind of mask You know, carefully managing exactly what the other person sees in me. In other words, they never felt the need to hide their deepest thoughts uh, from each other. They weren't afraid of of being exposed. Uh, There was a sense in which they were completely at ease in this completely stable identity. Can you imagine? And God's saying, look, this, this is what I want for you to have with me, Adam and Eve. See it among yourselves. I want you to have this. Your marriage is a metaphor of what I want for you. Which is why when you study chapter 2 of Genesis, you really, uh, you're tapping on the center of your heart right here. You really are. Because the truth is, we really want to be naked and unashamed. To know that we are both known and yet still loved. This is why you got in a relationship in the first place, because I wanted there to be somebody out there who knew me as well as anyone could know me and yet still cared about me. Have you ever thought about how hard it is to have both of those at the same time? On the one hand, we can be completely naked with people and let them know exactly who we are, what all our motives are, what all our bad attitudes are. But man, don't you risk rejection in the face of that? I can't be unafraid if all of a sudden I'm completely exposed. So what most of us do in order to avoid the fear is we hide. We give each other very carefully manufactured versions of ourselves so that we can maintain whatever good opinion we hope that you have of us. Man, it never scratches that itch, does it? On the inside, it's like we know that we were meant to be known and loved. Because shame by its nature is repellent. It pushes us away from other people we don't want to see. It's almost as if it affirms us in our own loneliness. Deep down, we know that something's wrong. And we know more than anything else in the world that we need a cover. We need to be covered, which is kind of my my last point. Every human being needs a spiritual cover in order to have any kind of hope in relationships. Or or better yet, to put it in the covenant language, we need a mediator. (laughs) Someone who will go between us as covenant breakers, and God as the covenant maker. This is why the Covenant all points to this reality that Jesus had when he shows up, you know a couple thousand years later, He's hunted by the religious authorities of his day and finally nabbed on a bunch of trumped-up charges. And do they give him the death penalty? But what's fascinating is, is while he's being crucified? All of the accounts tend to mention that when he was crucified, he was stripped naked as he was. And you read those passages and you're like, what an insulting detail (laughs) to include in the account of your fallen Savior's death. Why would you say that? But it's because these earliest believers understood that he was doing so, so that he could be the mediator of a new covenant. In other words, if you know Jesus this morning, this is the cosmic reversal (laughs) His nakedness became your cover. That's the gospel. That's what he came to be. Because why? He knew us completely and he loved us fully. And there's no other place in this life where anybody can find that. The one thing that you know intuitively you were created for and that you thought your marriage was going to be enough for, but it's just not. To be fully known and fully loved. It's one of my oldest illustrations, but I, I, 20 some odd years ago, my wife and I got a chance to go to a wedding of a friend. And it was just one of those great moments where, you know, we, we got the key seat, which was on the center aisle. I learned that's like a strategic thing you've got to do at weddings. And you can look back and see the, 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 the bride and, you know, the organist who's got a flair for the dramatic, you know, opens up the big doors and in she steps. And all of a sudden, Ginger's taught me to sort of do something. that is to look at the groom. Tell a lot about that wedding if you look at the groom. How does he react? And Man, this guy just completely, he just buckled, right? Tears come streaming down his face at what he saw, his bride coming down towards him. And as I was thinking about that this week, it suddenly occurred to me that like every wedding photo I've ever seen of people on their wedding day, I've never seen somebody looking like forlorn and insecure. Never. Why? I don't know. Maybe there was somebody on their wedding day who felt that way. But my guess is, is that picture that you take as they climb in the car to kind of jet away, you know, to their life is one of all smiles and elation because someone has just pledged themselves to them till death us do part. Of course, it's empowering. So here's my point. When you take the mediator of the covenant into the center of your life, it enables you to be naked and unashamed. Because now you're not hiding from God anymore. You don't have to hide from each other, right? I I have power to go on without pursuing people's approval all the time and being utterly self-conscious at every moment. Suddenly my relationships begin to enhance because I don't have to have them. Honesty, openness with others when you know that you're completely loved and completely covered by the righteousness of Christ. So here's my question. Does the covenant describe your relationship to the Lord? Does it define why you're here this morning? Maybe it should. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us that grace to see that better. Help us, Father, look at all of these images you've given around us, our, our friends, our children, our spouses. All these relationships are screaming to us that you mapped out the world under the framework of the covenant. Even your word is unpacked in those very terms. So we pray, Father, that we would see your intentions, so we can understand the plot of human history and our lives as well. So we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.